moral of the story, God's always right. And uh, we should learn to live with that. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So I was thinking before we jump into Second Samuel, since we went through the whole book of First Samuel verse by verse, I kind of wanted to do a short overview of everything that we talked about, um, sort of like we had done with previous books, but even in shorter detail. If I could summarize the book of First Samuel, I would say it like this. There, it's a story of really three main characters, and it kind of gets broken up between their, their lives and stories. It really starts out with Samuel. Now, Samuel isn't born yet when the book starts, but the beginning of the book is very much focused on Samuel's journey. Samuel's miracle birth, Samuel rising up as someone who grows up in the priesthood and takes over for Eli, and someone who is the last judge in Israel. And he's really good at it. He's the best judge. He's better than all the judges in the book of Judges. He's really seeks after God. He's someone who actually learns how to listen to God's voice, and he does that at a very young age. And he's someone who listens to God's voice all the way through. And he acts as this bridge that gap, that bridges the gap between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. And he's the one that changes Israel's history. So that's how the book starts. And as Samuel is leading, Israel's in a really good spot for the first time in a long time. And there's not a lot of turmoil. And as there's not a lot of turmoil and not a lot of bad, Israel decides that they need some drama. And so in very human fashion, when things are going well, that's when we ignore God. And so the people turn on God as their king and they say, Samuel, you're old. Even though Samuel lives for years after they say this, they say, Samuel, you're old. We need a new leader, and so will you appoint us a king? And they do this early, because if they had just waited, Samuel anoints David as king. But because they couldn't be patient, and because they couldn't wait on God, and they couldn't just accept 
and be content with the fact that God was leading them really well through Samuel the prophet, they beg for a king and they get what they ask for and they get Saul. And Saul basically has two good things happen. He kicks out all of the spiritists and the mediums and those who commune with the dead and break the law of God. He kicks those people out of Israel. And then the other thing that he does is he rescues Jabesh Gilead early on in his reign. And interestingly, both of those things pop up at the end of Saul's life, which is how the book ends. Saul's life ends with him turning his back on one of the two really good things he does by kicking all the spiritists out. And he goes and he asks one to help him figure out what God wants him to do by calling Samuel out from the dead. And he turns his back on the one good policy he had in Israel. And he dies and gets told about his death through that spiritist in shame because he turned his back on the one good thing he did as king. And then Jabesh Gilead, the people that he rescued early on in his kingship, are the same people that rescued Saul's body after the Philistines had taken him away. Um, and so there is one bit at the end of Saul's life that's remembered for the good that Saul did. One good thing is left on Saul's resume. Uh, but unfortunately, Saul dies in only the way that Saul could die, caring not about his relationship with God or repenting of his sin, but just being selfish in how he looked when he dies. And he doesn't want to die at the hands of the Philistine. So he lays down on his own sword to try to gain some personal honor and control in the last minutes of his life. And then the third character is David. Now, this isn't most of David's life. It's just the introduction to David. We see him anointed as king, rise up as a man after God's own heart, serve in, in Saul's house, and then get chased by Saul because Saul is intimidated by the fact that God has anointed David to be the next king, and Saul is only concerned about his own throne. Saul dies because he didn't do what God asked him to do. He didn't follow through on what God had asked him to do, and because he didn't do that, David had been risen up in his place, and Saul spent his time hunting David rather than preparing for war against the enemy that was after him. And because Saul turned his back on God's will and chased after the king that God had appointed to come after him, Saul was slain. And that is the end of chapter one, and that really sums up what the book was about. Now, there's all kinds of interesting stories and detours and details, and we see the ups and downs beginning in David's life in 1 Samuel um, nothing like we'll see in this next book in terms of the highs and lows of David's life, because this next book really focuses on David. But we get his introduction, and we see that he's going to be somebody who has a lot of ups and downs, really high highs, really low lows. But even at his worst, he will be confronted and turn himself back to God and repent, which is what God is looking for. Because we can't be perfect, but we can be people who repent and turn back towards God. So with that in mind, the story is now pretty much solely focused on David, and that's how we open up the book of 2 Samuel. So verse 1, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, David had stayed two days in Ziklag. So what had happened is the Amalekites raided the hometown of 
not the hometown of David, but the city that David was staying in. So David and his men went and hunted down the Amalekites. And now David's returning from that. And he's finding out about this battle that Saul had with the Philistines. On the third day, behold, it had happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. So now there's a guy walking up to David and he's, he looks like he's in a traditional state of mourning. He's got ashes on his head, he's got torn clothes, and he's coming to David in a state of mourning. So he looks like he's in the right mindset. But we'll see how that plays out. Verse 3, David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. So David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So now he's giving the news to David that Saul and Jonathan died in the battle. And he's doing this in a state where he, he looks like he's in a state of remorse based on his clothing and traditional garb of the day of what you would look like. So he's coming to David looking a particular way on purpose. You'll see. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? So the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and answered, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered to him, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So Saul had been struck by an arrow. He chose to not have that be the thing that killed him. He chose to lay down on his own sword and commit suicide so that he could take control of his, of his end. This guy comes and tells David a different story. He says, Saul was laying on his spear, but it didn't finish him. And he was in agony, so he asked me to finish him. And so I, I did. I killed Saul basically out of mercy what he's saying. Why would he be telling this to David? There's two things. One, we don't know if he's telling the truth or not. If he is, it's very interesting because Saul was rejected by God as king when Saul chose not to destroy all of the Amalekites. So if he's telling the truth, then Saul died at the hand of an Amalekite who shouldn't have existed because Saul was supposed to get rid of them. And so there's a little bit of God's poetic justice in that if this is true. But even if it's not, there's still some interesting pieces to it, because this guy is basically saying, I'm going to tell David, because it's well known that Saul has been chasing David around for years, trying to kill him. And so he's likely thinking, which Amalekites would do, go raid the, the battleground after a war so they could 
get riches from it and take plunder from the leftovers. And so he's probably thinking, ah, I know who to tell. I'll bring this stuff to David because Saul was trying to kill him. So David must be seeking revenge. He might even reward me if I tell him that I was the one who put an end to this for him. And so this is what he's thinking. This is what's going on. Verse 10, so I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. This is where you get the context of, I think he's trying to, to, to get something from David because he already took plunder from Saul, from the king of Israel. This is the best plunder you're going to get. And I think he thinks he's going to get even more if he tells David about this. So he's seeking riches. And he thinks he understands David's mentality. This is really going to be the big point of this whole chapter. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. Probably not the reaction this guy was expecting. He's probably expecting David to be happy to be excited that he took out his enemy and now he's telling him. Instead, David tears his, clo his clothes in a traditional sign of mourning and grief. Verse 12, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, said, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David told him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So here's a guy who's thinking, oh, if I tell David, I'm going to be in his good graces. And instead, his response is David's sad and angry. And he says to him, who do you think you are? to put your hand against the king of Israel, against the Lord's anointed. Who do you think you are? So David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. But David, this might seem vengeful, but David is really filling, fulfilling the law. Saul was defenseless. And this guy is telling him that he killed a defenseless man. And according to the law, that's capital punishment. So David is dishing out, according to the law, the punishment that this man deserves. Which is certainly not what he thought he expected. And what's the point of all of this is that, yeah, Saul treated David like an enemy, but David did not treat Saul like an enemy. This is, it's amazing because this is the heart that we see in the Messiah. And this comes from, from David's bloodline, right? David is the one who, who starts this type of mentality in Israel, this really love your enemy. And Saul, David still had this soft spot for Saul. I can't imagine I know that I wish I was like this. I wish it was easier for me 
to be so loving and kind and generous to people who just hate me. <laughs> right? I wish it was like that. Uh, and I wish I had the heart of David because this is how David acts when his enemy falls. He doesn't rejoice. He doesn't throw a party. He's not happy. Instead, he mourns. And he acts justly. Verse 17. Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. Um, so just a little background. We don't have the book of Jasher. It's not scripture, but it, from what I understand, it's sort of like a, a memoir of fallen soldiers, but in poetic form. Um, and so part of that is quoted here in the scriptures. It's not a scriptural book, but it is an ancient Jewish writing written in poetic language over fallen heroes and, and soldiers. And so David quotes it. He says, the beauty of Israel is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Interestingly that he, he says this, right? How the mighty have fallen. Now we hear that in our modern language and it's kind of carries a negative connotation, right? We always talk about how, you know, pride comes before the fall and, and the arrogant. And, and that is kind of a biblical thing, but that's not how it's being used in this sense. David is really exalting Saul and still pouring love out on Saul. And he says, the beauty of Israel, that's what he's calling Saul, the king of Israel, the one who was placed on the throne by God. And it's, it's David's reverence for God's will in the fact that he placed Saul on the throne. Regardless of how Saul acted, David is still having reverence for whom God chose to put in leadership. And he says, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. And this is like a positive memory. It's not how we use it today. Tell it not in Gath, which is a major city in, in uh, the Philistine territory. Proclaim it on the streets of Ashkelon, another major city in the Philistines. Uh, territory, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. So he's saying, let's not spread this news to the enemy. This is a sad day. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields or offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. So he's claiming their valor and honor in warfare. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So David pours out in this emotional song, about Saul and Jonathan telling Israel to weep over them. And though Saul was not the, a good king by any stretch of the imagination, he did do something that no one else had done, and that is unite Israel. 
and taking them out of tribal format into one complete nation. And he's saying, remember these things. And then he remembers Jonathan. And his words for Jonathan are beautiful, and they've been taken out of context in modern, modern understanding. But the truth is, David's remembering his best friend, a person who he fought in battle with, who saved his, his life and whose life he's, he had saved. They had counted on each other in battle, in life or death situations, and had been there for each other and held each other accountable to God. That is something that could not be replaced by anyone. And it certainly could not be replaced by David's wife, who happened to be his first wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, who he didn't even want to marry in the first place. So what this is really saying is that the bond of war and accountability and the fact that you could literally put your life in this person's hands and know that you were okay is the type of love he had for Jonathan because that's what they experienced on the battlefield together. And also, in the house of Saul, as Saul was going crazy, they had each other to count on as Saul was throwing spears at people. So they knew that they had each other to count on in the worst of times. And David remembers that. So that's what is really being conveyed there. And this is how David reacts as his enemies have fallen. Chapter 2. It had happened after this, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So now after David goes through this period of mourning, he does what David always does when he's facing the right direction, when he's in the right mindset, when he's following God, before he does something, he asks God first. He seeks God's will. And this is exactly what he does because David is in the right frame of mind right here. This is, where shall I go? And God says to Hebron. So David went up, went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who wore, who were with them, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, came there, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So this is where the story is going to get really interesting. David, he's mourned. He still feels sad over the loss of Saul. He feels extremely sad over the loss of Jonathan. But the people are in recognition that David is back. And David, their mighty warrior, the one that they love, he's from the tribe of Judah. He's back in Judah. And that tribe says, David's our king. He's back. And they anoint him as king of Israel. But now he's looking at the, as this is happening, he's told that the people of this city were the ones who rescued Saul's body from the Philistines when they when they took it from the battlefield and hung him on the wall. These people rescued Saul. So this is how David reacts to that news. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will 
repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So what does he do? He doesn't declare his reign over the people of Jabesh, which he had every right to do. He had been anointed by Samuel, and now he's put in place in the, king, in the kingdom of Judah by the people, and he has every right to claim the full kingdom of Israel. He has every right to do that, but instead, he takes pity on the people of Jabesh-Gilead, the people who had reverence for Saul, because Saul's first act really as king was to save them, and they had a fondness for Saul. And so what does David do? He doesn't go and gloat over his new position over this city. Instead, he shares in their remorse, and he says, you be blessed. And he doesn't put himself over them, and he doesn't put himself in power or authority over them. He just gives them time to mourn, and he lets them be free to what they want to be, which I think is pretty wise. This is a moment in David's life where wisdom reigns. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what's rightfully his, what he could rightfully claim. Instead, he's thinking with wisdom about what's best for those around him and what's, what's the best thing to honor what God has done thus far. So he remembers Saul. He remembers the people of Jabesh Gilead, and he, he allows them their mourning period. But, so the tone change, big old but there. Can laugh at that, it's okay. Uh, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Machanaim. So Ishbosheth is left. We don't know why he wasn't in the battle. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where he was or why he's still alive because all of Saul's sons that were in the battle are dead. So I don't know why Ishbosheth's alive. It's not really expounded on. We don't know. But that's an interesting point. Why was he not fighting? Also, Abner, who's supposed to be the person who guards the king, is fine. So again, we don't know where Abner was when Saul died and Jonathan died. But he's not really looking brave in my eyes. Doesn't look like he was standing next to the king at his end because he's still fine. And now he's, he's plotting. So as soon as he finds out that David has been anointed the king of Judah, he immediately finds a way to put himself in power by putting Ishbosheth on the throne. Basically, he's looking to control through bureaucracy. Like, here's the, here's the figurehead, but really, I'm the one who's in control. That's what's happening with Abner. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel, except Judah. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. So at this point, the only tribe that's following David is Judah in the southern area, most of the southern area of Israel, and the northern kingdom is following Abner through Ishbosheth because they're still loyal to him. But if you look in the history of you know timelines and what it looks like, Ishbosheth is really not a character that's even counted in the lines of the kings. This isn't a a real significant period of time. But at the moment, this does seem to foreshadow what's coming. Because, interestingly, there's now going to break out a civil war in Israel between the north and the south. 
which will happen again after Solomon dies. Um, and Solomon's son has a servant who breaks off into the north. And so this sort of foreshadows Israel's future. Uh, but at this point, this, this period doesn't last very long. Verse 11, And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So for seven and a half years, David waited. This is a recurring theme in David's life up to this point. David had Saul in had Saul's life in his hands twice. Saul was completely unaware that David was hiding in the cave that Saul was relieving himself in. Saul was completely unaware that Saul that David was standing over him when he was asleep at the camp. And twice David spared Saul's life because he refused to take into his own hands. He refused to take God's will into his own hands. He let God do what he was going to do. He let God's timing reign, and he waited. And now, after Saul has died, David is rightfully the next king of Israel, and he's already been anointed by the people of Judah and chosen by the people of Judah to reign over them, but he doesn't exert his authority over everyone else. He waits, and he allows God's timing to play out. And I'm certain that this is part of the reason that David is the most beloved king in Israel's history, because he wasn't a tyrant. He didn't tell everybody that it was his way or no way. He sat and waited and allowed God to do what God was going to do in God's timing, rather than just saying, because God has placed me here, now I'm the one who gets to be the authority. He allowed God's will to reign rather than his own, which is the opposite of what Saul did. When Saul was placed on the throne, Saul was turned by his authority. He was corrupted by his authority, and he only sought his own power. David, on the other hand, when he's put on the throne, doesn't see it as his authority. He still sees it as God's authority, and he waits for God's timing rather than taking it into his own hands. And that's where we're going to end tonight. Because that's a lesson for all of us. Even if we know what we're supposed to do, it's still important to know that it's God's timing that matters. I know I waited for over a decade to break into vocational ministry. I had known that I was called to it. I had been frustrated for years trying to do it. I had spent time working pretty much full-time in ministry as a volunteer because I had no other options. But God's timing reigned. And when the right time came through, God's providence worked a miracle to get me here. And I, I think it's worked out really well for all of us. And looking back, I'm really glad that God's timing was the one that got it right. Because if I put it into my own hands, it would not look like this. And I probably would have burnt out a long time ago. So moral of the story, God's always right. And uh, we should learn to live with that as hard as it is. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Uh, we love you. And it is difficult to wait on you. It's difficult to deal with the fact that we don't know the future and you do. Um, and because of that, 
we think we know what's best for us because we don't see what's ahead. But you do, and you do know what's better for us. And as hard as it, as hard as it is to just surrender to you, help us to do it. And I'm so thankful that your word makes it so clear that you do know what's best for the future and you do know the end from the beginning. And it is easy to surrender. Well, it's not easy to surrender to you, but it is easy to have faith in you. And in turn, through our sanctification, through getting to know you and spending time with you, it becomes easier to surrender our will to yours. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.